Good morning. It's good to be with you. My name is Taylor Reevely. I'm leading our church's work to plant a new church in Oregon City. And this morning, I have the privilege of filling in for Pastor Travis, who I didn't know was going to be here. <laughs> and so all of the jokes that I had planned to start this morning, I'm going to have to save for another day when he's not here. But seriously, one of the things that I marvel at every time I hear Travis preach when I'm here leading music or otherwise is how vivid a memory of his childhood he has. I don't know if you've picked up on that, but I can't tell you many stories about Travis's childhood. And so I wanted to ask you to think about your own childhood and consider what was one of the rules or traditions that you were brought up with. What is one of the rules at your home when you were a child? Were there any family rules or expectations of you as a child that formed your present behavior? I remember one rule, and it was something like this. If I walked into a room and my parents were talking or talking with someone else, I was not to interrupt the conversation with my own ideas or words. I was to put a hand on their leg and wait, and when there was a moment in the conversation, they would turn to me with undivided attention, and I would say what I needed to say. I think that's a wonderful rule. Um, I think it's, it's a rule I'm t teaching my children now, to not interrupt. But imagine if I still lived by that rule. And when we were talking out here in the lobby earlier this morning, and I had something to say and just put it on your leg, and waited till there was a moment to get my word in. It doesn't, that would be uncomfortable for so many people, for so many reasons. It was given to me by my parents, not as a rule that was to be absolute forever, but as a rule to instruct my heart to respond and interact humbly, patiently, respectfully in conversation with others. And you can be thankful this morning that I, I think that the rule really helped my heart and I don't have to do that anymore today. Well, today in the Gospel of Matthew, the Pharisees come to Jesus with the complaint that Jesus' disciples are not obeying the Pharisees' childhood rules. And Jesus calls them out for failing to follow God's rules by holding fast to those childhood traditions. Their rules did not produce in their heart the affection for Christ that God desired all along, and instead they have fixed their affection on their traditions. So please turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, it's the first book in the New Testament, and we are now more than halfway through. And follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor father and mother, 
And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In this passage, Jesus moves from the specific to the general so quickly, a summary is hardly even needed. It's a summary in itself. But if I were to summarize Jesus' words here at the beginning of chapter 15, in my own words, I would say this. Fix your heart on Christ, not your traditions. Fix your heart on Christ, not on your traditions. I believe that is the word that trickles down through history, speaking still, living and active to us this morning. Well, the first thing you should notice is that there's a conflict here. We've got a problem. The Pharisees have got a problem with Jesus' disciples and consequently with Jesus himself. And Jesus has a problem with the Pharisees. So we'll look at both sides of this conflict in turn. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 as the Pharisees claim that Jesus' disciples break their tradition. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They do not wash their hands when they eat. The context that frames this account, this conflict, needs some attention before we dive into the words themselves. If you look back to the previous chapter, Jesus has just miraculously fed 5,000 from two loaves and five fish. Five loaves and two fish. Not a lot of food that turned into a lot of food. He sent his disciples off into a boat while he went up to pray, and they encountered a really scary storm. And then Jesus comes walking on the water in the night, and the disciples worship him as the Son of God. And then Matthew 14 ends with these words. Look at verse 34 of Matthew 14. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all the region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Now these verses, this account of the healing at Gennesaret serves as Matthew's transition by which he turns from the miracles Jesus has performed now to this dialogue or conflict about what is clean and unclean. And his telling of the faith of those sick who touched Jesus' garment in Gennesaret is significant. In the Old Testament law, God set apart a people for himself by giving them the law through Moses. And because God is holy, without sin or fault, those who entered his presence, who lived as his people, must be clean. So this people was to live in fellowship with God, set apart, distinct in their obedience 
of the law of God. And the law explained in very granular detail what it was that would make a person unclean or clean. They're often referred to as ceremonial laws. When a person became unclean, there was a ceremony to become clean again, a process, a rule, a washing. The main thing you need to know about the idea of Jewish uncleanliness is that it was contagious. So when a person touched something that was unclean, the uncleanness transferred to them. So here in Matthew's introduction, this transition at the end of chapter 14, Jesus has been touched by unclean, sick hands and consequently should be unclean now himself. And that's a problem according to the law. And with that in the background, Matthew resumes his narrative in chapter 15, verse 1, and picks up the dialogue on, of all things, eating with unwashed hands. So the Pharisees and scribes come to Jesus. The Pharisees were, at the time, the contemporary religious leaders in Israel. They were the ones that interpret, that guard, that define the laws by which faithful Jewish people must abide in order to live rightly with God. The scribes who accompany them are the legal experts. If you're watching the game today, Mike Pereira will probably chime in in the commentary as a legal expert during Coach's Challenge. You might think of them, that's how I think of the scribes in this, in this moment, coming with the authority as, as the professionals. So you have the religious leaders and the professional lawyers approaching Jesus. You need to notice that they're not just casually approaching Jesus, walking across the room. They're not just crossing the street. They weren't spectators of his miracle of feeding the 5,000 or walking on the water. It says that they came to him from Jerusalem. Now, apparently what's transpired in the background of Matthew's narrative is that about 15,000 people were on that hillside fed by Jesus. Jesus dismissed them, and it seems that many of them returned to their home in Jerusalem. And you could imagine, after witnessing that, that you wouldn't be quiet about what had just happened in that hillside. 15,000 people gathered on a hillside and ate a meal, and they didn't. Wash their hands. You can imagine that the Pharisees caught wind of this. This, according to the Pharisees' tradition, would have made them unclean. Which was a problem because now they're living ordinary life in the midst of Jerusalem, the capital city, unclean which was a problem for the Pharisees who might accidentally bump into one of them in the marketplace and by transfer become unclean. And because the Pharisees were the ones that served in the presence of God, to walk in unknowingly unclean was to risk their life. So this is a breaking point for the Pharisees. They've got a bee in their bonnet, their panties in a bind, and they set out to confront Jesus. And it was no small journey. The journey from Jerusalem to Gennesaret is about 90 miles. They've calculated the gravitas of the situation, the significance of their journey, and they arrive in this lower-class desert region, bringing with them the pomp and circumstance and authority of the capital city of Israel. 
And when they arrive to Jesus, they say this, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Maybe that sounds like a very simple question. But it's not. That's a trap question. They don't really care why. They just said, he did it. Disciples broke it. It is an accusation. And when the Pharisees are referring to Jesus' disciples, they may be referring to the 12, but likely they have in mind the 15,000 that have been following Jesus now for some time, who have all eaten with unclean hands. At best, and they have a problem not just with the disciples, but with Jesus himself, because at best, Jesus did not uphold their ritual of ceremonial hand-washing at the Feast of Loaves and Fish. And at worst, Jesus taught the disciples that day that it was okay. And either way, Jesus was, in their mind, a law-breaking rabbi, unclean himself. And they are here hoping to change that. When they level this accusation, when they ask this question, what are they even talking about? They refer here to the tradition of the elders, a problem with washing hands. It appears that they're referring to a tradition, a rule of law passed down from people of old. This is not something they've just made up themselves. No, their fathers and their fathers' fathers also Pharisees, have established this tradition of hand-washing. And the tradition of hand-washing likely originated from one of the only mentions in Old Testament law. In Exodus 30, the priests, Aaron and his sons, are commanded to wash their hands and feet in a copper, a bronze basin before they are to offer a food offering to the Lord. That's it. That's the whole law regarding hand-washing. It wasn't a sanitation issue. It was an issue of ceremonial cleanliness for a priest who is about to enter into the presence of a holy God. But the Pharisees and their fathers and their fathers' fathers were the sort of people to take a rule which was meant for a few and build rules upon that rule. I mean, after all, it was better to be clean than unclean. So if we could just make everybody clean all the time, it would be better than if some people were unclean some of the time. So the rules that they were intended for the priests, they applied and enforced now to all ordinary people for all ordinary meals. So when they get word that Jesus' followers had eaten a meal without washing hands, this was a violation of the tradition of their law that had been established by the religious leaders of Israel. Pharisees have got a problem with Jesus and his disciples. Now, you, that wasn't a genuine question. You can clearly hear the accusation. So, in typical Jesus fashion, he responds to them and does so without answering their question. Instead, he turns their own accusation against themselves and he raises the stakes and aims at the heart. Here's the problem he has with them. 
In verse 3, he answered them. And he said, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Jesus doesn't say a word about hand washing. He doesn't concede anything. He doesn't explain that there was no water and the people were hungry and it was, that we were in a hurry. He doesn't preach at them. He counters with a question. Sure, his disciples might break the tradition of the elders by not washing their hands before they eat. But his indictment of them is that they break the same present ongoing action as they use in their accusation of him, God's commandment. A much bigger deal. His problem with the Pharisees is that their traditions, their teachings, their rules violate the very laws that they're designed to uphold and protect. The traditions they hold dear, the traditions by which they define holiness and right living do not just fall short of the intent of God's law, they violate even the letter of God's law. And he gives them an example, and it's a powerful example because if you were to think of rules you should keep, ten might come to mind that were written in stone. And he quotes the fifth commandment out of those ten given by God to Moses on the mountain in Exodus 20. Honor your father and mother. And in Exodus 21, it continues, whoever curses his father and mother shall be put to death, or as Jesus says here in Matthew 15, must literally die to death. He claims the Pharisees have constructed traditions that directly violate one of the clearest rules that could be violated. And it's not a ceremonial rule or a judicial law. It's a part of the moral law that God has given to His people. One of the ten, the very heart, in His contrast with the command of God and their tradition at the beginning of verse 5 is strong. The emphasis in every sense is, but you say. The problem he's leveling against the Pharisees is that they've made rules so that they don't have to deal with the real problem. They've invented ways to outwardly appear to honor God and yet inwardly violate His commandment. And in this specific case, Jesus is poking holes, or really just smashing, their tradition referred to as the Korban vow. Mark, in Mark's gospel, chapter 7, the same account is given, and that word is used to describe the nature of this uh, accusation that Jesus raises against them. And a Korban vow would have worked a little bit like this. You have some money, you have some resources, and you have some aging parents. And you maybe don't really want to give all those resources to your parents. 
So you make a Korban vow to give those resources to God. Your vow is absolute. To break it would be to sin against God, but it's a noble vow, right? That's a good thing. To give your resources to the Lord is a good thing. But it just so happens that your parents didn't die and they need you, their child, to care for them in their old age. But you have, have given it all away. You have nothing left to care for your parents. So you respond to their plea for aid with the words he uses here. What you would have gained from me is given to God. Those very words, do not honor father and mother. No, they are a curse to them. So is this vow good? Is this tradition good? No, really, do, do a layer here of critical thinking. To give to God what could be given to parents, or instead of giving to parents, is that a good tradition? It gives children the choice to choose between honoring the Lord or honoring parents. Surely your parents would understand. Surely it would be more noble to choose to please God over honoring your father and mother, right? Sounds so good. But the point is that your tradition makes void. It breaks the Word of God. The tradition, this tradition, as simply one illustration, cannot honor God because it disregards His Word. It disregards His explicit command. And in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus doesn't stop there. He includes these words, and many such things you do. So we've got a fun conflict on our hands today. We're at an impasse. You can almost hear the unspoken indignation of the Pharisees at this point. You can almost see them seething. But Jesus continues by adjusting his aim from their traditions to now aiming right at their heart in verse 7. And here's where the point becomes crystal clear. To fix your heart on Christ, not your traditions. Look with me at verses 7 through 9. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus is using Isaiah's words, which had real meaning for the people of God, the rebellious, adulterous people of God in Israel's day, in importing that meaning for his own use. He's speaking not as a mouthpiece, a prophet of God, but as God himself. And the heart's affection is due to him. But it's not just been forgotten or overlooked, it has been rejected.
He calls them hypocrites in the sense that they create rules and boundaries to help them keep God's law, yet those rules and boundaries themselves break God's law. His law has never been about behavior modification or religious rituals. God has always, ever, only been after the hearts of His people. And in quoting Isaiah, here, Jesus is identifying the Pharisees with that adulterous and rebellious generation and identifies himself as the God to whom all adoration and affection is due. One of the things that Jesus is indicating in his response is that he's doing a new thing. Just like the old rules that we had as children no longer have the authority or power in our life, He's taking the Old Testament law and he's not throwing it out. He is fulfilling it, elevating it, highlighting for us its intent all along. The law was not designed so that we would put our hands on every person's leg and wait until we were able to say something, but so that our hearts would see, learn, and obey the principle of not interrupting. The law was not designed to be written on tablets of stone, but to be written on our heart. This new thing that Jesus is doing through His life, death, and resurrection is He is inaugurating a new covenant. The law has never been about the form or the means, but has always been about the end. The problem God had with the wicked and adulterous generation in Isaiah's day was not that they did bad things, but that they had bad hearts, hearts that spurned Him. And it's the same problem Jesus has with the Pharisees today. You hide yourself behind your traditions, but deep down behind the religious trappings, your hearts are far from Me. This is what Jesus has been doing from the beginning. In the Sermon on the Mount, his first sermon in Matthew 5, you remember that he took the law. You have heard that it was said, the tradition that has been passed down orally. You've heard it was said, but I say to you, in that motif, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I say, don't be angry at your brother. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say, whoever uh, looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The new and better way of the right side up kingdom of Jesus is that it is all about the heart. And this is what the Old Testament prophets spoke of in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. And notice just even the, the clean, unclean language here. This is God's promise to his people I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And here today... We are face to face with this reality, this new reality again in Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees' traditions, that by faith in Christ, our uncleannesses are cleansed. 
that our hearts that once spurned Him have been replaced with a heart of flesh that feels for Him, is drawn to Him. And the rebellious spirit that once ruled us now has been replaced by His Spirit who causes us to obey. And that is very good news this morning. It's very good news that this message is not about adding to the pile of traditions that you must keep in order to be a good Christian. It's very good news that this morning you don't need to try harder to do better. That you simply need to come to Christ. Your heart drawn to Him, satisfied in Him, and find life as it was meant to be lived in Him. It's good news that Jesus doesn't come establishing organized religion with a performance pathway to get to God, but that he comes to the sick people on the hill. It's good news this morning that when we by faith reach out to touch the garment of Jesus, we are cleansed and he is not soiled. And it's good news that he, the most lovely, the most satisfying, the most desirable of anything, desires that your affection would rest solely on Him. So even with the arrow drawn and pointed at the heart, that is good news this morning. This warning, this caution, is the caution that trickles down through history and meets us here. What is your heart fixed on? Is it fixed on your traditions? Your rules? Is it fixed on Christ? Is it fixed on your rituals? Or is it fixed on Christ? I asked you this morning to consider a rule that you had when you were a child, but really I should ask you to consider a rule you have right now. What is a rule that you feel or think live by right now? And one of the, one of the indicators is how you complete this sentence. Good Christians must fill in the blank. Good Christians must what? The Pharisees thought that good Christians must wash their hands before they ate every meal. To you, what is it? I want to help you think critically about your traditions, just as I think Jesus would prod us today. How would you fill in that blank? How should you fill in that blank? Here are two cautions about traditions that are summed up in Jesus' response to the Pharisees. The first is this. Traditions or the rules or rituals can place comfort and familiarity over and against the Word of God. Traditions can place what, that can elevate what is comfortable and what is familiar to you and me over and against the Word of God. In this sense, when you elevate the tradition over God's Word, 
over your affection for Christ, you've created an idol, one that you worship. You mistake the end for the means. Traditions should be useful in fixing our hearts to Christ rather than be the thing themselves that we worship. Now, this happens all the time. I'm not sure about you, but my family has some Christmas traditions. We set up a Christmas tree every year on December 1st, and we take it down every year on December 26th. Every year. For 10 years we've been a family, every year we've done it the same way. This year, things were a little bit different. We have a Ukrainian living in our home, and the Ukrainian day of Christmas is January 7th. She asked if we would keep this tree up for an extra two weeks. Now, the reality is her tradition and our traditions are different. Neither of them are prescribed in the Word of God. But there is something prescribed in the Word of God, and it is to love your neighbor as yourself. So I was faced with a real choice. Are we taking the tree down because it's the way we've always done it? Or are we going to love her like we would ourselves and leave the tree up for two more weeks? The tree is now outside, and it is still not in the yard debris container because the tradition was messed up. But I'm thankful for this moment. This is the work right now. How, where is my tradition land? Will I honor Christ? Will I serve and, and love Christ and His Word over my tradition? Or will I hold so fast to that that I will not bow to Him? The second caution is that traditions can also create a false sense of security. Traditions can create the sense that everything is right when in fact it is not. Your hands might be clean, but your heart filthy. When we follow traditions and we do it well, we follow them well, we feel like we're right with God. He's smiling because we're doing all of the right things all of the time. Therefore, we're putting our hope in our actions, our performance instead of in the work that Christ has done on the cross. I put my hope in what I am doing, not in what has been done. Hope in anything other than Jesus or anything in addition to Jesus is damning. Now, one thing that you might find to be a tradition is that of going to church. Good tradition, right? You can nod your heads. That's a good thing to do. And you're here doing a good thing. If God is after your heart, I couldn't think of many better ways than to be with God's people, singing praise to Him, hearing His Word, and doing that together. Certainly a good tradition. Is it absolutely, in every instance, always a good tradition? One that you would expect all good Christians to do. The caution is... Check your heart. If you're in church and you feel like God is satisfied in you, smiling on you, or if you miss a week and you feel like God is unhappy with you, so you perform and He smiles and you fail and He frowns, then yes, your good tradition 
good tradition, has been elevated above the word that Christ has spoken, it is finished. That is not gospel. That's law. And if that's your heart's reaction to the good tradition of going to church, then your tradition is bad. God's after your heart, not after your performance. The problem is the reversal of the ends with the means. And with these illustrations and with countless others, you, you know yourself. You can perhaps see that you cannot simply perform heart surgery with a hammer. So I'm encouraging you to do the careful, diligent, difficult work of examining your heart and working to keep it fixed on Christ with all vigilance. And you have a tool for that. The tool is the Word itself. Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. We can talk a good game, we can sing a good game, we can have yet places where the Word of God is blocked by our tradition. Now, I share these cautions uh, regarding your traditions and rules of life simply because, don't miss it, not anti-tradition, Jesus is an anti-tradition, there are traditions that are good things, but God is after your heart, and your responsibility is to, with your traditions, is not to hold them as an end in themselves, but to make your traditions serve your heart's affection for Christ. If your tradition becomes your master, your savior, or your warrior, which you serve or look to for God's smile or use as a boast against others, then you've misused the tradition, broken God's commandment, and have not honored Christ. So my goal in this message has, has been to help you fix your hearts on Christ. You will be satisfied there. You will find life there. He's not after your behavior modification. He's after your heart. He's not after your religious rituals. He's after your heart. He's not after your lip service. He's after your heart. Jesus died so that you might be free from sin to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to the degree that your traditions do that and help you do that, lean in. And if they promote anything else, be warned and turn to Christ. Would you pray with me this morning as we ask for the Lord's help? Heavenly Father, even as your word has spoken to us, there are perhaps even traditions uh, of what we will now do next in our lives that would block us from responding to your word. 
Lord, would your word have the effect that is intended? Would it produce the fruit that is desired? Would we yield? Would we hold things rightly with an open hand and hold your word firmly? Lord, I pray that even that flavor, that perspective, that priority would create here in your people a community of love, a community of humility, a community that looks like the community Jesus is creating. So, Father, soften our hearts once again. Would you stir them in affection for you, and would you cause us to hold fast to the end? In your name, amen.